This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, got four really good topics. Number one, we're going to talk about GE working with, with Lafarge Wholesome on uh, wind turbine blade recycling and mixing some of the you know shredded up wind turbine blades into cement, which is a really cool idea. We'll talk about a new tool called Dark that's going to help protect bats while uh, hopefully keeping energy production up for some of these wind turbines uh, with their curtailment, curtailment solution. We're going to talk about this is my favorite thing of the week is the 1000 foot. It looks like a huge box fan. Um, that's potentially going to be a, an offshore solution. This new prototype said to be really, really powerful and, uh, can essentially take all this sort of swept area and put it into one sort of condensed package. And then lastly, we'll talk a little bit more about these prototypes, um, a GE floating prototype and all that stuff in wind. Before we get going, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to Uptime Tech News. So if you're a regular listener to the show, listener to the show, number one, thank you. Number two, in the show notes, whether you're on YouTube, uh, iTunes, Spotify, you can just check right below. There's a link. And if you sign up, you'll just get an email from us every Thursday saying, hey, we got a new episode. Here's some other great articles we found on the web, including the stuff that we discussed on the show. So if you want to stay current on what's happening in the wind industry, uh, definitely sign up for Uptime Tech News again. Link is in the show notes below. So, Alan, how are you, sir? Let's get started with uh, GE and cement. So we had, you know, um, the founder of Cobod, Henrik Lund Nielsen, on the show, and they had a great partnership with GE and Lafarge Wholesome. Uh, Lafarge was providing the unique, um, you know, concrete cement mixes for their 3D printers, which they're printing, you know, winter and blade um, foundations and towers and all that stuff. I actually saw, watched a pretty cool video. They uh, built the first uh, Habitat for Humanity home down in Arizona this past week. So a lot of good stuff coming out of Lafarge Wholesome. But they're teaming up with GE to potentially recycle wind turbine blades. And my big question for you here is, um, as you know, an expert in composites, what does this mean for the strength of cement? I mean, it seems like this is probably a really good type of aggregate to mix into cement. Would it not be? Yeah, it is. And there's been uh, basically chopped fiberglass and even chopped carbon fiber, which is much more expensive, put into uh, concrete mixes because it kind of binds everything together. Uh, it mm -hmm. makes it like a concrete composite. <laughs> That's what it does. So there's there's an advantage. There's advantages to that. And, and it looks like GE has completed for full circle now the recycling and reuse of wind turbine blades from grinding them up to then taking them to a cement processing company maker that can also can use it for partially fuel, partial for reinforcement, and then mm -hmm. 3D printing 
wind turbine bases, like the towers. They're going to print the towers. So they, they have a life cycle. That's pretty cool. That's a, that's the first that anybody's done that that I know of. Uh, so it, it does. So not only are you re- using the wind turbine blades, but you're also making your towers, your next generation of towers, stronger, which is mm-hmm. it's just a bonus and probably less expensive because some of that uh, chopped out wind turbine blade takes up raw materials that you would otherwise have to put into the cement mix, thereby making maybe possibly lower cost overall. Which is yeah, which is for your raw material. Yeah, right, that makes right. sense. Yeah. You have your own raw material. Yeah, right. Exactly. So there's just maybe a lower cost uh, reuse that does make them at this point the industry leader in recycling. It, yeah, it, there's no well, one else close right yet. I don't think. Yeah. Well, and we talked about Veolia recently and that they have a solution that they were also partnering with GE. So right. um, I don't know the answer to this, but maybe, you know, all three of those companies are maybe collaborating. Again, I don't know that for sure. Um, but, you know, we know Veolia has the technology to, to shred these blades right. essentially and, and to help get them into that recyclable aggregate kind of form. So you'd think that maybe they fit into this, um, this you know, since GE is obviously working with both companies. So, right. Um, it's good to see these big companies teaming up to do what's important because it seems like for a long time companies weren't that interested in what happened to their products afterwards after yeah. after they were yeah they're it's, done and of course true. that's still a big problem with you know soda pop bottles and a lot of these consumer single-use plastics they're still not so kudos to the wind industry for taking the initiative doing this when there's still lots of consumer products that are not yeah uh, that's true but uh, but there's also a financial incentive to do it now Right, and I think that's what's going to drive uh, GE and Viola and everybody else to go find out where the wind turbine blades are sitting right now and get them shredded. Right, and that's yeah. there's an incentive to do that's a financial incentive to do it. So they're going to start looking around trying to find those places where blades are stored. Maybe even dig up the ones that they've already buried so they can recycle them, which would be just truly fascinating because that is foreseeable. It's very similar to this is probably pre-birth of Dan, so BD, I guess, <laughs> before, before Dan, <laughs> where, where we used to have aluminum cans. Like, if you walk down the street at one point as a kid, there would be, like, soda cans and crap and garbage. <clears throat> and one of the things they did was incentivize people to recycle aluminum by aluminum had value. You could recycle those cans and get paid. And all of a sudden, all the aluminum cans mm-hmm. just disappeared from the street. So it was a financial yeah. incentive to to recycle them, and it, it sounds like GE just made a way to to incentivize uh, operators, owners of wind turbine blades to recycle them, because you you may get paid yeah. for them to take them away to grind them, which is better than burying them, that's for sure. So it's just really cool. It's a really cool yeah. system. Well, and that does not predate me because I. Definitely. I, I'm pretty sure as a family, we would like recycle some cans and we would get to go to the recycling center. Um, I can't remember how old I was, but I was, I was probably pretty young. So it was exciting to like collect 20 cans and get a dollar <laughs> when a dollar was actually useful back then. When I was a kid, you'd get a box of macaroni and cheese for 49 you cents, go. you know? And so um, not that I was going to go buy macaroni and cheese, but um, and of course, even 
maybe like a decade ago. And I don't, I don't know if I've seen anyone doing this, but you would see, you know, people in the streets, like you'd see homeless collecting cans, like fishing through the trash to get them out and they would get money that way, which is also a good yeah. thing. Um, obviously a heartbreaking thing, but you know, people knew like, Hey, this is like, if I'm out here, I can collect this and this is money, a resource for me. I don't, I don't know if that's still the case though. I don't know that I've seen someone do that, but I certainly noticed that in the past. Um, maybe that was when I was in Baltimore, you know, what is it? 15 years ago and out for college. Good grief. <laughs> age, age. Um, but yeah. And of course, um, was it Vestas who's found a way to, um, essentially dissolve. It sounded like they're dissolving their blades and reducing them back into their. Yeah, I, that was that was. I, a, should, I that, should have been prepared here. No, that was here, a chemical process. That's another solution. Right, that's another, another process. Mm-hmm. Basically, break it back down into its elemental pieces and reuse them. Uh, break mm-hmm. down to get the fiber back out, get the resin system back out, and reuse the resin system again. That's a lot different. There's a there's a lot of yeah. pieces to that. It makes it complicated. And I wonder how much financial incentive there is to do that versus grind it and sell it to another industry. <laughs> probably easier to grind it, sell it to another industry, probably. GE's pretty good about counting the accounting groups at GE are pretty good about finding out where the money lies and how to make things work financially. I have a pretty good feeling GE's worked this one out. Well, yeah, and you wonder I mean, I think at this point, it's good for everything to be an arms race, right? Mm. I mean, if there's three different ways to potentially recycle blades and everyone starts getting on with the business of doing it, then you'll figure out like, yeah, the cement thing actually is a lot more economically viable than the, you know, the chemical um, reduction technique, if that's what you'd call it, or, you know, turning them into parts of parks, which we'd seen in the past. I think we talked about that over a year ago that uh, some parks over in Europe were using wind turbine blades chopped up and, you know as like either art pieces or just sort of just as like a thing like to sit on into benches right. whatever it was but obviously there's going to be so many of them you can't put them in every every part yeah, right that, that's but, true um and, and america has a slightly different issue than europe in terms of wind turbines because we tend to put wind turbine farms up in groups of 100 turbines and europe tends to do them in groups of three five ten so when a mm-hmm. park runs out of service life in the united states there's a lot of blades and and we yeah. have uh just because I mean, it's easier to, you know, America's a big country. So it's easier to kind of get them to and from where they need to go uh, to get recycled. So there's a big problem. I think if, if you're GE and you put a lot of wind turbines up in the United States, you know that's going to be a big problem. You know it's going to be a big problem in the next couple of years. So they've been obviously been working on it three or four or five years at this point. These things don't, just don't pop out of thin air. There's been a lot of work and engineering studies and accounting studies and agreements behind the scenes that we haven't seen and we're just now just seeing the very beginning of it but you know these agreements have gone on for quite a while which is really fascinating it's, it's been quite so quiet so he's not about this for a long time yeah yeah mm-hmm. so moving on uh there's a interesting article from the office of well, from energy.gov Talking about uh, company Natural Power's DARC system, DARC, um, trying to just recover energy while protecting bats. So obviously one way to protect, you know, animals, like whether it's uh, birds or bats, would be to curtail the wind turbines, so turn them off, and then, you know, they're going to be okay. Uh, But obviously that is a huge power loss. So this DARC system 
has a bunch of sensors. It can it can tell. Uh, it can pick up using microphones the bat's ultrasonic echolocation calls, which is crazy and super cool. Um, and then it can shut it down in ten minute increments, which is obviously not going to be a huge power loss. So um, sounds complicated. Sounds really interesting. Sounds also somewhat similar to what um, the the guys over at Ping are doing over in Australia with their uh, you know acoustic right. monitoring. Um, Alan, does this sound like a good solution? Well, it's one way to address the concern, which is uh, bats getting around turbine blades and the just the pressure differentials around the blades uh, affecting the, the bat's very small, sensitive body and frame. Uh, so th there has been a lot of discussion about if we detect bats, what's the easiest thing to do? Well, the easiest thing to do from a safety standpoint is to stop the turbines, but there's been a lot of discussion about well, past whatever time it gets dark, essentially when it's dusk, you might as well just shut them off and then turn them on the next morning. And that, but that's a huge power loss, especially if there's no, no bats around some of the turbines for most of the night. So you're losing a, a pile of energy that you could otherwise be generating. Whereas if you were to detect them locally and then shut off turbines for a limited amount of time until the bats basically leave the area and get them back going again, you're just going to regain a lot of power you otherwise would lose remember it wasn't it in ohio and wasn't in lake michigan where they're talking or, or was it lake erie or they're we're going to shut down yeah. the turbines at nighttime right yeah, i think lake erie mm -hmm. which is what you're trying to trying to deal with is how do you minimize the downtime without uh affecting the wildlife so much and it seems like a pretty s smart way to do it you know i, I guess the the it really yeah. lies in the details how accurate the system is, and obviously when they install the system, they're going to be monitoring to see how well it does. All you need to do is kind of walk around in the morning and see how many bats are on the ground, unfortunately, but that's the way it's going to happen. It, but, yeah, hey, look, uh, it's better than not having wind energy at all, which is the other alternative. So you, there's a good compromise. Yeah, it's just the... the yeah, it's like a right. drawbridge approach, right? Like the bridge is going to be down and drivable most of the day, but you got to lift it up once in a exactly. while to let ships go through. So that's a lot better than just, like you said, right. not having a bridge. Swimming. Because there's right. too many big boats coming through. <laughs> yeah. So and it seems like we have the technology to, to, like I said, I've never heard of that before, of them being able to detect their echolocation calls, but that is super cool. And yeah, it does. And it doesn't seem like bats are out no. there for forever, right? It seems so. like they're making their right. rounds, doing their thing, just like a flock of birds. Like they're, they're not just lingering in the sky. So, um, yeah, maybe that seems like a good, yeah. uh, a good solution. So the big thing on the topic today, cause this is my favorite new prototype, but I feel like there's more offshore wind prototypes <laughs> like jumping out in the news yeah. cycle than ever right now. Like it's almost, uh, it's not even close to the what's happening in aerospace with uh, electric vertical and takeoff and landing vehicles, but there's definitely more of these because everyone's realizing, hey, they're like, we need more off offshore solutions and it's it can't all be inside the box with the standard horizontal um, wind turbine. But uh, this wind catching system um, is, it looks like to me, just I see a huge like white box fan, <laughs> like those cheap $15 fans that you put on um, when you spend your summer living in an apartment without air conditioning. Um, and it's got a ton of smaller right. wind turbines in it. So just the nacelles and right. obviously the three spoke blades, but this thing the scale is a thousand feet tall, which is gigantic. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's on three yeah. huge, uh, piles, but I mean, it seems, Hey, like that seems interesting, but Alan, what, what technical problems might you, 
might they, well, they encounter with first this one design? is how you kind of support it and what kind of infrastructure you'd have underneath it to, to, to support it second comes in terms of maintenance i think how you going to maintain the thing which is really important because there's there's all kinds of maintenance on wind turbines all year round rarely do you mm-hmm. have six month period where everything's quiet <laughs> so how are you going to maneuver around this large grid of turbines no it's not discussed but i think that's one of the biggest issues is maintenance and repair how do you do that and say you lost one of the blades way up top do you have to shut down everything else to get up there and repair it as a worker i'm not sure yeah Yeah. that's a good as a worker question uh, (laughs) yeah i'm not sure i want to be around a lot of whirling blades on this superstructure which would it just doesn't seem practical you know it's one of those engineering things you see like Mm, I don't think so, but who knows, right? I mean, obviously, the, 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 they're going to have to make small prototypes and try them and, and see how it scales up. Which is the way you do things mm-hmm. in engineering: is start small, figure out all the details, and then just decide whether you can make it in full scale or not. I, I just think there's so many little details involved in power generation, particularly wind turbine power generation, that you kind of lose that. Um, you lose all you lose the details when you're thinking on a grand scale, and it's the details that'll kill a project. Just that's just what happens. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a lot of complexity. Like yeah, like you said, and that's that's so say there's a hundred mini turbines on it. If one is down, do they go fix it? Right. Is, if three is down, do they like what's the threshold when they have to go and like take care of it? Because you're right. If one in the center is down, I mean they've got to stop the whole thing conceivably to probably to access it. And that, and of course, like, you know, the intricacies of this, it's, it's not disclosed. It's just showing one rendering from one angle. So who knows? But, but yeah, obviously more (laughs) moving parts is not better than less moving parts. But, you know, again, like maybe they design like, Hey, we could lose 15 of these and we're still cranking and profitable and that's fine. Sure. And then, yeah, that makes, okay. So you can, they're just built in, built in that, you know. Whenever it gets to that threshold, we shut it down for two weeks, fix everything, and then put it back online, and it's still hunky dory and, and profitable. So there's a lot, yeah, like you said, there's a lot we don't know. But the other thing is, um, I mean, we know that these wind turbines they absorb right. the wind energy, right? So if you have a huge farm, like there's less wind that comes out the other side, and so if you cluster all these together. Are they collectively going to have less energy available to well, each one of them? The Is whole that thing, the whole thing wasn't spinnable, right? It was like the individual turbines. It doesn't are, appear to be. It looked like no, the individual turbines could kind of pivot inside of this frame. That's what it looked like to me. Um, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I can't really tell. It's it's, it's tough. Right, it looks like a lattice work and a bunch of turbines like, inside yeah. this lattice work, which, again, it just seems like it's so far-fetched. It's It's... On, on an engineering scale, is it worth it? And I, 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 you know, when we're there's been a lot of really interesting, like YouTube videos, um, like Engineering with Rosie is one of them, and then uh, a lot of podcasts that are that are talking about mm-hmm. some of the practical pieces of generating power, getting it to places where it can be distributed. And I just think it's so complicated. Right? You know, that's one of the things that's happened over the years is that even, even though the wind turbines have gotten smarter they've also gotten more reliable because they they in some situations simplify them a little bit and this is just super complex and it just doesn't 
your engineering alarm bells started going off and saying, ah, mm, yeah. no. You also wonder about the stiffness of it, right? right? I mean, this thing is a thousand feet tall and they're gonna be absorbing a lot of this wind. Yeah. So these big gusts at a thousand feet up, I mean, are they gonna push this thing where it's like one little well over. pops and this thing starts to bend or yeah, it topples over. It just seems like it has to be really stiff and well built. Right. Um, you know, much like a skyscraper and it just, just at a glance at it, it doesn't seem like, again, this is just a rendering, but right. um, it seems, I don't know, kind of uh, exposed to the elements. But then again, again, who knows? And of course, we're going to have to see more of these. I mean, do you expect that we're going to see more and more of these prototypes that everyone throws their own design and their, their hat into the ring to see yeah. what could be, you know, what's that, what outside the box idea could, could actually work here? Right. I think as offshore wind, particularly floating wind, becomes more of a reality than a vision, you're going to see a just a bunch of different ideas pop up about how to best utilize all that wind because a lot of times the wind offshore is very constant and reliable unlike wind onshore where it can be up and down all day offshore tends to be a little more stable so there's a you know there's a huge energy resource just right off the shorelines the question is how do you best provide a stable platform and a means to to collect that energy and to get it back on shore and if if you just keep your ear to the ground and just watch right now that all of the different news articles and stories about different ways you're going to float these turbines, different ways you're going to be able to uh, put them on ships or, or construct them out on the ocean. There's so many different ideas being floated, and each one of them has some potential. The question is, can they put together a business case and make it re make it real, and couple that with all the infrastructure? it's going to take to create these things just to create the ships to haul the turbines to their final mm -hmm. resting place is going to be a huge infrastructure problems so while there's so many ideas about how what these turbines are going to look like offshore and what the the floating aspect is all the detail and all the and a significant part of the fortune you're going to spend doing it is going to be onshore in terms of uh, developing te technical people, training them, creating the facilities, creating the infrastructure, creating a power grid to create the factory to deliver this because most of these are going to be delivered from mostly remote locations that have had a dock in the past and now they're going to re revitalize this dock. So there's just so many other moving pieces. It's very similar to the aircraft industry and is, interestingly enough where the airplane is just a small fraction of the total cost all the people and the infrastructure yeah. is so much more money than the final product it's crazy well and you also wonder if if further engineering efforts and prototypes are going to be aimed at capturing more wind and making more electricity or if it's just going to be on hybridization mm. such as you know siemens gamesa just announced that they're going to they're going to try real hard to produce green hydrogen right true um, from onshore wind turbines and i'm sure that will become offshore as right. well oh yeah it will um so, like, are, are they going to be like, no, we don't need to change the design of these wind turbines. Let's stick with what we have, but let's try to see what else we can do. Like, we've talked about the aquaculture labs mm. and other different, just like ride-alongs, right? So you can have your t 12 megawatts with a side of green hydrogen yeah. or a side of, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, I mean, do you think it could end up taking that route? I mean, where, where do you feel like... You know, that's a really good point because I haven't really thought too much about the green hydrogen aspect uh in the in the United States, you really do not hear any emphasis on green hydrogen. 
you you hear it in Australia, you hear it in Europe quite a bit, and Airbus was just pushing back this week on green hydrogen and and using it for uh, bigger aircraft. But uh, there there are places where electrically generated hydrogen could be a useful piece of the energy portfolio. The 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 kicker is, you know, how do you make that into a business and how do you sustain it? And in Europe, you may be able to sustain it. And it may be more of a reality, something that is worth going after than it will be in the United States where we're kind of electrified. Mm -hmm. We can do most things. Um, We're also very city-oriented in the United States, huge, massive cities. So... It's just a very – that's a very strange thing because when you think about the wind turbine OEMs, for the most part, are in Europe, you know, except for GE. Uh, I mean, even G, part of GE is in Europe, obviously, on the, on the, on the blades. But the, the way that the two countries and the economies are addressing these, these real problems is really different because I do think the green, the, the green hydrogen does have a place to play, but it may not in the United States – at least not yet, which is weird. So then you have like two different business models going on simultaneously. And like Siemens Gamesa, which makes wind turbines for Europe and obviously the United States, is going to have to deal with both those simultaneously, which is a really f- weird place to be. Because essentially you can be making two slightly different products to fit those, those marketplaces, which you don't like to do. You like to make one that goes everywhere. That's your ideal in, in terms of efficiency. So that, that is a really fascinating dynamic. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up really quick in the next two to three years is going to be a big deal well and maybe that's incentive for some of these companies to to hitch up because for me a, a metaphor is kind of like you know if you're in spring training for the nfl and you separated all the veterans from all the rookies <laughs> well okay the veterans are going to do their thing and the veterans in this analogy would be the winter the standard wind turbines yeah. as they are and the rookies would all be like green hydrogen <laughs> yeah. but then if you start to mix them together now the veterans can like sort of nurture them along. So maybe, maybe if any of these renewable energy companies want to get heavier into hydrogen in the future, they could just like start kind of incubating it now by tinkering and like let's see mm-hmm. what we can do here. Even though this is maybe not a big player today, maybe it's a big player in five right. years. I mean, how many of these things couldn't we have predicted five years ago that were going to be yeah. big? I mean, Tesla's like exploded on, and that like the electric car revolution has kind of been quick. I feel yeah, like. it's kind of good. You know, like there was no mention of it. 10 years ago and now it's all it's under the, it was face. under the radar I, so, I'll, 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 I, sure. I do think that's a very fascinating point because the the Tesla car thing is pretty obvious you can watch you can count the number of cars that come out the assembly line so you get quarterly numbers from Tesla saying they're making I don't know uh, 50,000 cars in a quarter the thing that, that that I didn't realize was how many of those little power stations and recharging sites that they have built which is in, in the United States is thousands they're everywhere and there's been little fanfare about it but if you look if you're going to plan a trip drive a Tesla from massachusetts to texas there are a lot of places to stop and recharge a vehicle and that infrastructure is just as important important as the vehicle itself and i think you raise a good point is there's a lot of infrastructure stuff that has to be done that is just as important as the, the 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 fancy shiny automobile uh, that they have to go together because the automobile without the ability to recharge it makes the automobile just not worth it. Having the recharging stations, which we've had in the United States for 
20 plus years in a lot of places locally small onesie twosie kind of thing but no cars to charge them like with a chevy volt and that just never happened yeah they don't go together so you need both to work together to get to that final solution which is where i think green green hydrogen and wind are going to go eventually yeah, and that makes sense because like you don't want to have oh hey, we have fifty thousand new electric cars let's right. scramble to throw to charging right. stations all over the country like you want to just start because you're right that that they did sneak up because I think everyone had that thought a while ago it's like well there's nowhere even to charge a new electric car why would I want one no at the grocery store they have recharging sites places that you wouldn't think of have libraries have recharging sites <laughs> they're everywhere they're everywhere. And it just, it happens so behind the scenes that you never thought about it. But now when you go to go buy a Tesla, they will make a big point of, well, there's 15 charging stations within five miles of your home. Yeah, cool. Right. That's awesome. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Podcast. Thanks again for listening. And be sure, if you're regular, regular here on the show, to check out the Uptime Tech News. It's a free email newsletter from us. Just lets you know when the next show is out, clips from previous shows, and again, other insider information from around the industry be sure to subscribe on itunes spotify youtube wherever you listen and we will see you here next week operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs minimizing risks and being efficient with maintenance repairs and upgrades It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.